Well, hello. I am so glad to be with you guys tonight here in the room. Also, those of you online, hello. It's good to see you. If you, thank you. If you don't know me, my name is Sarah. I get to be one of the pastors here at Calvary Young Adults. Um, if you're like, hey, you look familiar, I do announcements every week. But tonight, I actually have the privilege of continuing our series in Isaiah. So we're going to jump into week two of that series. And last week, Pastor Brian Williams got to open us up. He basically gave us an overview of the prophet Isaiah and the people of Israel. We entered into this kingdom divided where the Israelites of the southern kingdom of Judah have basically turned their hearts away from God. They begin worshiping him insincerely. And Isaiah is the guy that is sent by God to speak to them in a warning, a declaration of his just will for this nation. And Pastor Brian said something that I love, something that I really honed in on from last week, and it was this that God wants to purify us unto prosperity. And this isn't prosperity like we think of when we think of financial gain or money. This is prosperity of mind. This is prosperity of heart. This is prosperity of soul that can only come from the transformation that takes knowing God rightly. It comes from knowing who God really is, who we really are before this God. And this is really what theology is. So theology is the study of God, but it's also the knowledge of God. And this is a word that I've heard about 9,000 times in the past four years, which is that, that's a pastor's count. Um, this is because I've been in seminary for the past four years. I've had the opportunity to go to school to study who God is. And I'm actually done one week from tomorrow. So I'm ready to go, graduate. Yes, praise God. You don't even know. So thank you to everyone who's still my friend after being socially rejected week after week and listening to me geek out over concepts that, like Brian said, need to use smaller words. Um, but I actually have my final, final research paper due this weekend. So I feel you, everyone who's in school, especially on the quarter system, bless you. That's due this weekend. So this is really to the grace and glory of God that I'm up here, that we get to share this sermon with you. And I say with you, because I do this with the Lord. My brain is literally an alphabet soup of Isaiah and liberation theology. So work with me here. <laughs> but as I reflect on my time in school, it just made me realize that when you go to school to study things about God, you study concepts about God, suddenly some people think that you know God more than they do or better than they do. And I was reflecting on this, and I can say, like, I've grown in knowledge, absolutely. I believe I've become a better student, a more well-rounded thinker. And by the grace of God, I have fallen more in love with Jesus, my seminary was awesome. It's extremely ecumenical, which is just a big word for saying there's a lot of different denominations, and it's global. So I have classmates from all around the world, so many different perspectives on who God is. But what I found is that you could read all the books, you could hear all the perspectives, and even appreciate other people's diverse perspectives and experiences of God. And those things can be really helpful. But as my current professor, Patrick, said at the beginning of this quarter, at the end of this day, at the end of today, true theology, true knowledge of God is relational and it's ongoing, which means I can spend, we can spend a lifetime in study of who God is, but without relationship with God, we can leave understanding nothing. We can leave completely untransformed. But the good news is that means this is theology, this concept of knowledge of God is for everyone. It's for everyone. You don't need a degree to know theology. 
because the knowledge of God is not a set of facts, but a lived experience. It's an ongoing story where God is the author and the main character. And friends, once we begin to participate in this story, daily walking in the hunger to see ourselves in light of who God is, that is a book you will never want to put down, especially when you begin to understand the plot that he has for you. So tonight, my desire is that we get to know God a little bit better together as we go to his word, which is not just an assembly of facts about God, but an alive and active ongoing process and experience of God. So with that, let's open to Isaiah chapter 6. These are the words from the prophet Isaiah in verse 1. And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So I just want to pause here. That that first opening line, in the year that King Uzziah died, Brian introduced us last week that the book of Isaiah is history. It's history, it's prophecy, and in a way, it's poetry in the way that it's written. But I want to pause here to say that this is a real moment in time. Uzziah was a real guy, and there's actually significance to his story. So what's the significance? Let's take a deep cut into the life of Uzziah. We can jump into 2 Chronicles 26, 16 through 21. I'm just going to read it to you. Verse 16, it says this of King Uzziah. But after Uzziah had become powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah and the priests with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him. Like, can you imagine being followed by 81 people into church? They confronted King Uzziah and said, it is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated, set apart, dedicated to burning this incense. And they warned him, leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and you will not be honored in the eyes of the Lord God. And I'll just summarize in verses 19 through 21 what happens. Essentially, we see Uzziah being confronted by the priest, and he grows so angry by this confrontation that he spontaneously contracts leprosy on his forehead. And if you know what leprosy is, it's this terrible disease where basically you're decaying as you're still alive. Your flesh is decaying. So this is horrible enough in and of itself but in this culture in the ancient Near East, if you had any sort of imperfection, if you had any sort of physical ailment, you were to become ostracized or isolated from that community. It was an honor-shame culture. So this is one of the worst things that could have happened to a king at that time. He was unclean. And because of that, he was formally exiled, not only from his own home, but from the temple of God. So he was taken out of his position of authority and his son, Jotham, then takes over. And I think there's something to learn here from King Uzziah and how he came before the Lord. And it's this. When we try to please God without actually knowing God, we fall to pride. This is pride. This could go both ways. This is thinking that we are greater than God or we're not worthy. In a sense of like, we can never, ever, ever approach him that he hasn't made a way. But pride is birthed either way from a disordered view of ourselves before God. And Uzziah felt not only that he was above God, but he was above listening to the counsels of the priests. And Isaiah 5.20, actually, fast forward a couple chapters, has something to say about this. 
It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Basically, who get so caught up in their own pride that can't tell up from down or down from up. But what happens to people like this? Being wise in our own eyes can also look like rejecting godly counsel, rejecting correction from the people of God. And this leads to a spiritual blindness. Pride blinds us. So I'm going to propose that Isaiah did not include this detail about Uzziah's life without intention or his death without intention. Because the spiritually blind ruler dies and suddenly a clear vision of the Lord is open to Uzziah or to Isaiah. Let's continue in verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says this, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. The Lord clarifies Uzziah's disordered view to this picture to Isaiah, a picture of himself exalted, enthroned, high above the earth, that only the hem of his garment fills the temple. Isaiah 66.1, this is what God literally says of himself. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where is my resting place? Like, I love when God, like, sounds a little sassy, but, like, he's serious. He's speaking to his people. We hear this throughout the Bible again and again. He tells this to Job. Where were you when I created the universe? At the beginning of time, where were you? You weren't there. It was me. I am preeminent. I am all in all. And guess what? This is the order. God exalted above all of his creation. Pastor Brian Williams, a few weeks back, put it this way. God does not call us to define him, but to know him. He doesn't call us to define him. He is self-defining. God is who he says that he is. The name that God gave himself before Moses at the burning bush was Yahweh, which is translated to I am who I am, present, in time, self-described. God is who he reveals himself to be. God is awe, God is might, and God is mystery. We can't figure him all out. And I'm not up here today to tell you that I have God all figured out and you can too. I'm here today to point to the majesty of God and say he is far beyond our understanding yet invites us to orient ourselves, our lives to him because he has chosen to reveal himself to us. Through this vision Isaiah has, we can see that. We can see that God wants to be known and seen rightly. He wants to be known and seen rightly. And some of you may be thinking, okay, that's great and all, but I've never seen an open vision of heaven before. And if you have, please come talk to me because I would love to hear about it. God can speak in wild ways, but I know this is not a commonality. But this does beg the question, is a part of knowing God actually seeing him with your physical eyes? Or is there a sense of spiritual sight that God gives us? And looking at historic accounts of scripture, we can see Isaiah is not the first person to see God, or at least glimpses of God. We touched on this earlier when we sang same God. Moses saw the back of God on the Mount Sinai. He says, Lord, show me your glory. And God's like, I don't know if you know what you're asking for. He's like, show me your face. And he's like, well, I'll let you see my back. 
And what happens, he comes off the mountain and he is just draped in the glory of God to the point where it's blinding to others. And that was just a glimpse of God. Jacob, who then becomes Israel, wrestles with God in the form of man. He wrestles for the blessing that is to fall upon the nation of Israel. Ezekiel, who's another prophet similar to Isaiah, saw a very similar scene, the essence of God in his throne room, seeing an appearance of a man that some interpret to be Jesus in the heavenly throne room. And in all these instances, God is depicted in partial descriptions. Like here in Isaiah, we see the robe of God, but we don't see what his face looks like. We see the throne, but there's no description of his hands or feet. A common theme of scripture is, if you see God in his fullness, you will surely die (laughs) again and again. And if you're thinking, okay, um, so what about Jesus? Isn't he fully man and fully God? Then you're onto something. We hear about this concept of seeing God the Father in two particular accounts from Jesus, the Son of God. In John 1.10, Jesus says, no one has ever seen God. So that kind of clears it up, right? Um, But the only Son, referring to himself, who is himself God and is the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So we see that the fullness of God can be made known through Jesus. So Isaiah and others who get glimpses of God are given temporary provisional vision for the benefit of themselves and others. And as Brian spoke on last week, this was the primary role of a prophet, to receive messages and visions from God that benefit, or warn, the people of God. But here's the good news. We are given permanent and perpetual spiritual vision of God through the transformative power of Christ. And we'll talk about that more a little later, but that is good news. We have access to a spiritual vision of God through Christ Jesus, who is the fullness of God. So follow me here to Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. He's gonna kind of continue to talk about what does it actually mean to see God? Like what's at the core of that? And this, my friends, is the verse I hope will change everything for you. I, and not to like, it's scripture, it's the word of God, so I could put weight on that, but I hope that this changes everything for you. Matthew 5, 8, as Jesus is teaching to the masses about the qualities of the kingdom of God and those that are blessed or given favor or made happy, he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, for they shall see God. See, this word for see is autonome in Greek. And it doesn't just mean to see something in the physical. It's a little bit more than that. It's to gaze or behold something remarkable. It connotates an earnest and continued or ongoing inspection of something. It's the ability to continually see something remarkable. And that's the first definition. But the second one is equally as beautiful. It says to allow oneself to be seen or appear. It's this two-way sight. And where does this come from? It comes from those who are pure in heart. So what we take from this is this. Purity of heart allows for spiritual sight. Spiritual sight is the ability to be sensitive to and discerning of God. Who he is, what he is up to, what he is all about. As he is alive and active in this world, as he is alive and active in his spirit. So keep this in mind as we return to Isaiah's open vision. Verse two, it says this, above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two, they were covering their faces. 
With two, they were covering their feet. And with two, they were flying. Now, Brian Howard showed us some pictures of angels last week, but I had to give it a shot myself. So I found this on Tumblr, actually. So shout out to Tumblr. You know how old you are. Um, but okay, this, this is an artistic depiction of what is going on. This is the angel coming before Isaiah in the temple. And as Brian Howard said a few weeks ago, um, angels ain't cute. They're not cute. These are heavenly, otherworldly creatures who instill terror time and time again. What is the most common phrase when an angel appears in scripture? Do not be afraid, right? He appears to Zacharias, do not be afraid. Mary, do not be afraid. Joseph, do not be afraid. And these are holy people. These are people who God chooses to reveal himself to. And still, when they come before him, they're in fear and trembling of anything that even whispers of heaven, which to me, the, the shouts of heaven. But these angels, awesome in nature, are shielding their eyes and covering their feet in the presence of God. They do not see themselves worthy to see the fullness of God, nor expose their feet, which is symbolic of guarding their steps in the presence of God. And then something happens that I've actually missed for years of reading the scripture. Verse three, it says, they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The earth is full of his glory. They weren't talking to Isaiah or even to God. They were calling out to one another, an eruptive cry of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Their response to the mere exposure to God was almost like a chemical reaction or a reflex to declare God's character and to honor him, to honor him. So what is holy? If you've been around church long enough, you've heard this enough, right? But holy, holy is the whole of God. Holy is literally synonymous with God. Like, I'm not joking. I, like, search commentaries because I was like, I'm going to find some really unique definition of holy and blow their minds. But I've looked it up. Like, I've looked it up in the Hebrew and in the Greek. And there's time and time again, it's literally just a synonymous descriptor of God. He, like, invented holy. He is holy. It's all of his qualities wrapped up in one pure descriptor. I'll put it this way. He is holy merciful. He is holy just. He is holy graceful. He is holy loving. He is holy patient, holy wise, holy infinite. The list can go on and on and on, and we would never run out of descriptors. He is complete because to be holy is to be whole, and only God is whole. Only God is whole. Because something that is whole is also something that is pure. A word that can get a bad rap, right? Purity, pure. Pure is good. Pure means free of contamination or anything that would be harmful. God cannot carry harm or evil within him. And yes, God's holiness involves both a moral purity and a distinction from his creation. He is distinct from us. And it wouldn't take long to look around in this world and understand there is much that is not holy. There's contamination of relationships, of power, of peace, a contamination that starts within the human heart. This is sin. This is life unoriented to God, 
This is disorder. This is lack of wholeness. This is a separation from God. And somehow the human heart knows this, that things are not as they ought to be, as they should be, even those who do not claim faith in God. And why is this? It's because we were made by God. We were made to reflect his image of wholeness and holiness. Genesis 1.27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God wants his people to be holy. And if he asks it, it's possible. We see this throughout scripture. Leviticus says it many times, four times, five times, you shall be holy for I am holy. If you're going, wow, that's a tall order. You're right. You're right. The reality is that holiness is the only thing that separates us from God. But it's also the same time, the only thing that can reunite us with God. If because of sin, we are unholy and pure, that can only mean one thing. God is the only one who could do the heavy lifting, the purifying, the completing. And as we continue into Isaiah's vision, we'll find that God desires to do just this. He desires to do just this. Verse four, at the sound of their voices, the voices of the seraphim, the doorpost and threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. So seraphim, translated into the Greek language, literally means those who set on fire or those who burn. Kind of scary, right? The presence of God and heavenly things throughout scripture are often depicted through fire. I found some cool pictures. You want to see? The burning bush where Moses spoke to the Lord and the Lord spoke back to say, I am who I am. Fire. The pillar of fire in the Egyptian desert that led the people out of oppression, out of exile, into the desert. It was a cloud of fire by night and cloud by day. God described throughout scripture as a consuming fire. Jesus telling the disciples in my favorite verse in scripture, Luke 12, I've come to set the earth on fire and how I wish it was already burning. Is God a pyro? No. (laughs) Is fire purifying? Yes. Yes, it is. Brian Williams gave the visual last week of a goldsmith working over his gold, extracting impurities from molten gold until his face could be seen clearly in the gold. And he said this, that the purity of the gold is judged by the clarity of the goldsmith's reflection in it. If we were made in the image of God and God's desire is to purify us in Jesus, then we can once again begin to reflect his holy qualities. And that is good news. Okay, and I know that sounds nice, but let's see Isaiah's reaction to God's holiness. Verse five, woe to me, he cried, I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He instantly realizes his lack of wholeness or holiness, and probably remembers the warning of every man and woman before him of if you see God in your fullness, you're done. But might we be reminded that like Like, he's the guy, right? Like, we think of Isaiah, we think of these prophets, like, he's the one who hears God on people's behalf. He's the one God is choosing to reveal himself to in a vision. And yet, in the presence of God's holiness, God's pure nature reveals the cracks that sin and separation has produced in Isaiah. Sin and separation that have come 
from walking in a community of people whose hearts are turned from God. And I'm just going to drop this here, and then we're going to move past it, but I think this is important to recognize. In looking into this, Isaiah's brokenness or sin in this instant came from his walk with people of unclean lips. We become like who we worship with. We become like who we worship with. Read through the Psalms, read through the Proverbs. This life of faith is not a solo journey. Isaiah is not immune from the transitory qualities of sin that come from the people he is surrounded by. But here's what I don't want us to miss. I don't want us to walk out and be like, all right, I'm never gonna hang out with people I disagree with or are sinful. That's not the point. That's not the point here. The point is Isaiah's purity of heart didn't come from seeing himself like God and not like those unclean people, but it came from seeing himself as unlike God and for seeing himself rightly before God, unclean, partial, broken, in need of God. And that is what the road to having a pure heart looks like. Having a clear view of yourself gives way to purity before God. Having a clear view of yourself also takes being in proximity to God and others who are pure in heart. We need mirrors in our lives. We need standards of wholeness and holiness. And of course, God is the ultimate standard of wholeness and holiness. But we also see how community serves that. The people of God serve that when our hearts are pure before God together. And we see that in the story of King David. We sung of him earlier, right? He's the shepherd who took down Goliath. He's considered, quote unquote, a man after God's own heart. But he didn't recognize his brokenness in a vacuum. Even he didn't just come up one morning and go, man, I really messed up. He was anointed and trusted as king of Israel. But he's also the man that slept with another man's wife. He's also the man that went and killed that man to try to cover his tracks. And in 2 Samuel 12, we see the prophet Nathan. So shout out, we have another prophet. He confronts David. And at first, he's like speaking in metaphors about lambs and like taking your friend's property. And he's like, oh, that would be terrible. But he was speaking about David and this covetousness in his heart and the adultery that he committed. And basically having Nathan confront him, come before and be like, David, don't you see what's going on? David begins to profess, not I have sinned against you or I've sinned against this man or his wife. He says, Lord, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against God and you alone. And we get insight actually into David's response from his authorship of Psalm 51. So King David actually wrote a majority of the Psalms and Psalm 51 is a common song, Psalm of repentance. But this is actually David's response after he's confronted by Nathan and he sees his sin. And I just wanna look at verses 10 and 11. It says this, David's plea is simple. Create in me a pure heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. There is a link between a pure heart and the presence of God. There is a link between purity of heart and repentance. And David models this so beautifully. He is still called a man after God's own heart because he comes before God again and again and again. He doesn't let shame bind him or keep him he turns and says, God, I'm, I'm not worthy of it, but Lord, would you purify me? Because I want to be in your presence. Do not take your spirit from me. See, purity of heart comes through repentance, a recognition of what is unholy, harmful, 
unlike God in our lives and turning back to the only one who can restore us. So what does this mean for Isaiah? Verses six and seven continue. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand. That means it is hot. He had taken it with tongs from the altar and with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your mouth. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. In response to Isaiah's recognition of his unholiness, the seraphim are commanded to purify the very thing that he claimed to be unclean, his lips, the very instruments that God would use to speak truth over the people of Israel. And I just want to say, like, what I see in this is that, like, nothing is unredeemable, friends. Like, nothing is past the point where God cannot redeem it when we bring it before him. This is a God who purifies. He responds to repentance, recognition of our impurity before him. We serve a God who wants us in his presence. The God who touches the unclean to make it clean again, the holy God who has come to make us whole. So how? By inviting us into an alive and active relationship with him where he chooses to redeem and to restore the impure parts of us. This is the God that sent the eternally alive coal in Jesus to burn away anything that would keep his people from him. So often the criticism of the Bible is that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are so vastly different. And Ben talked about this earlier, right? But God has been the same. He has been the same. He is pure in mercy. He is pure in grace. And he is altogether holy, altogether willing and able to call his people to be about one thing, him, himself. So what happens when Isaiah receives the purification of his guilt? Verse 8 says this, Isaiah is saying, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Us. He is speaking for himself in the heavenly host. And without hesitation, Isaiah replies, here I am, send me, send me. How does a man go from fear and trembling to such confidence and obedience? Purification gave Isaiah proper perspective. This perspective gave him an opportunity to fulfill his purpose. Purification leads to our understanding of who God is and who we are before him. And when we see that as God intends us to see it, we understand our purpose. We understand our identity. We understand what we are called to do. And the burning away done by God is not to injure us. It's never to injure us, even if it hurts, but to heal our view of ourselves and of God himself And God gave Isaiah a choice, right? He's asking a question. And Isaiah's response wasn't debilitating shame, which I've been there, that can happen when we see ourselves before God, we see the brokenness or the sin, but it wasn't debilitating shame. It was an urgent obedience to God. A complete wow that you would call me, that you would see all that I am before you, God, and still choose me, that you would purify me, that you would put a purpose before me. I'm just wondering, like, what if we began to believe that the more we know ourselves before God, the more we're able to step into our purposes, our purposes in this life? Because God's heart for his people is not unique to Isaiah. Yes, he had a very unique call, right? We're not all going to be called to the nation of Israel or the United States or now and be like, listen, guys, 
If you are, okay, good luck. Um, But he has a purpose for all of his children, for you and for me. And when it comes to drawing near to God, allow him to purify your perspective. So what is this message that God is calling Isaiah to deliver? I just kind of gave you a hint. Verse nine, he says this. God says this to Isaiah. Go and tell this people, not my people, this people, be ever hearing but not understanding. Be ever seeing but not perceiving. Make the hearts of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Which doesn't sound like the worst thing, right? Why? Like, why? This passage is referenced five times in the New Testament, explaining why people were rejecting Jesus and his coming kingdom. Jesus actually referenced this verse when he's explaining why he speaks in parables, implying that there is a spiritual sight when it comes to the things of God, and that could either be open or closed. So those who seek God will find him when they have tuned their senses to God and his purposes. But those who don't do face this possibility of spiritual blindness, of being given over to the callousness of their own hearts. And as Brian stated last week, part of the Lord's anger against Israel is that they're distorting worship and sacrifice to God. They're going before him like King Uzziah saying, hey, I'm gonna burn the incense on the altar. But they weren't actually understanding who God is, who they were before God. It was insincere and it was impure. They're claiming worship to God, but they're impure in their motives. And they're actually putting their mind's attention and their heart's affection towards other gods, both literally and in the sin and their desires, which become like gods to them. And I know Brian quoted me saying this last week, but God doesn't do fake. He doesn't do fake. He would rather have us broken and honest like Isaiah and David than outwardly put together and inwardly self-deceptive. Why? Because God has high standards? Sure, you could argue that. See notes on holiness. But not only that, but because God will only purify what we're willing to bring before him. God will only purify what we're willing to bring before him. He can only be in the presence of purity, which is why the blood of Jesus over us and the Holy Spirit in us is such good news, right? It's such good news for those who choose to make Jesus their one and only object of worship. He looks at us and he sees Jesus. He looks at us and he sees his righteousness. But we also see here is that because of freedom of will, God will often give us the desire of our hearts, both in our pure and impure desires. We see that as the psalmist describes this, what happens to the surrounding nations of Israel. This is Psalm 115, and it's gonna sound real familiar. Verses three through eight it starts this way. Our God is in heaven He does whatever pleases him. He's talking about Yahweh. He's in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols, talking about the surrounding nations who Israel goes on to adopt many of their idols, are gold. They're made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell, hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk nor they, can, they cannot utter a sound with their throats. 
And this is, this is it right here, verse 8. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Those who make them will be like them, and so all who trust in them. God not only allows us to become like who we worship with, God allows us to become like what we worship. And the people of Israel became like what they worshiped, literally senseless, senseless, numbed to their ability to see God, to hear God, to feel God. And my question for us, not being so far off from the people of Israel, except for Jesus, thank you for that, Lord. What is numbing your senses to God? It's whatever we're giving priority above God, over God. And I'm, I'm going to give some examples. I'm just going to say as I wrote this, like, I am there in all these things. I'm not going to presuppose things that I can't answer for myself. Is it the media you're consuming? Is it your friends, your significant other, your family that you're prioritizing above God? Is it your desire for romantic relationships? Is it your job or your desire for a job? Is it your anxiety about the future? I'll put both hands up. And this is, I'm going to get, I'm going to a little real, but is it hidden sin that you're just too ashamed to confess or worse, you feel like you have under control? And I'll be the first to say, like, I've be, like I said, I'm guilty of prioritizing all these things at some point in my life over God. But I'll also be the first to say that identifying and repenting of these things will bring us freedom where shame and self-deception once lived. It is worth it. It is worth coming before God and saying, Lord, search me, purify my heart. Bringing a friend in and saying, this has held me captive. I want freedom and I want right perspective before God. And if you're like, I resonated with none of those things, you're like, I am a delayed processor. I got you. Three questions you could ask yourself. Three, three simple questions I take inventory again and again to be like, what are my priorities? One, what is supreme in your thought life? Like if you were to journal for a week and you could be like honest with yourself, what is supreme in your thought life? What do you constantly go back to when you're alone in your thoughts and you're going to bed? This is not a shame thing. This is an honesty before God so he can remove those things. Second, where is your money going? I get it. We all pay rent. There's things in our lives where we're like, well, the majority of my money goes to school. That's fine. But like in the places where you're like, all right, I can choose where this money goes. Where is it going? Lastly, where is your time being spent? Where do you spend your time? I'm not, I'm not going to be here and be like, you should spend all your time in isolation with God and fasting on a retreat. Like, there's time for that. But like, is it with the people of God? Is it in time in prayer with God? Is it seeking to serve and asking God, what are, what are you up to in the world? Like, he is everywhere. He is an adventure for us in this life. But are you going where he's going? Are you asking him to direct your steps? Is that where your time is being spent? And if you need, take a week to take inventory of these things. Present them before God in repentance and turn to the one who wants to be known in these things, but also above these things. Because the truth is that idols are not made overnight. They're not made overnight. So the chapter concludes with Isaiah asking a very reasonable question. Verse 11. Then I said, Isaiah speaking, for how long, Lord? And the Lord answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. 
And though a tenth remain in the land, it will again be laid to waste. But as the terambith, which is a type of tree, an oak, leaves stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is depressing, right? And I agree. I agree. This seems, this seems harsh. Like this, my friends, this is the wrath of God. But this is what it shows us, that without the Lord, there is no life. There is no hope. Without holiness, there is no life. There is no hope. And to tie it back to what Brian said last week about prosperity, impurity without intervention will lead to the death of prosperity. Impurity without intervention leads to the death of prosperity. And again, this is not material prosperity. Though we see that, we see that in the land. No, this starts with the heart. This starts with the soul. This starts with our minds. And the Lord is allowing them to see what life without him is like. He allows them to be overtaken by their own sin, by their enemies, because of their corruption. He will not dwell with people who do not want to dwell with him. But he is merciful that this is not forever. This is not forever. If we're at the end of the story, we wouldn't be here, frankly. Remember the moment at the altar is a foreshadow of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, he actually quotes Isaiah 6, saying this in John 12, 21, 41. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus's glory and he spoke about it. John's looking back and he's like, what Isaiah actually saw in the temple was Jesus's glory. When he received that message from the Lord, it's because he saw the glory of Jesus. And when he spoke of the seed that would not be stamped out, he was speaking of the approaching hope of glory of Jesus, the redemptive work that would be ongoing and made complete in Jesus and available to us today. So I'm just gonna leave us with two more questions. And the band can make their way back up. The first, for better or worse, are you actually willing to become like what you worship? For better or for worse, like God in his holiness or wholeness or incomplete and senseless. And the second is this, do you wanna see God? Like, do you really wanna see him? Do you want to see his glory? It's not always soft and nice like it sounds like, right? Like it's like Isaiah moments of seeing his glory where we see ourselves rightly before God and we see all that God is. But don't we want to see him? Don't we want to have pure hearts before him and see him? So as we enter into a time of worship of this very present God who wants to be known, I want to encourage us, all of us, myself, to ask God to reveal anything that is dulling your senses to him that is distracting from his purposes in your life, confess it to him and exchange it for a clearer understanding of who he is and who you are before God. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you're the able and available eternal coal, that you're able to purify our hearts before you, God, to reveal your purposes and our lives, God, to give us boldness to step out, Lord, and say, yes, here I am. What is it you want me to do? Lord, may we never grow tired of wanting to know you more. God, thank you that you make that possible. And Lord, tonight, 
I just ask, Lord, I do ask in sincerity, Lord, would you show us your glory? We love you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.